0: Welcome to the Movement and Mobility series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Alizar Arcaan. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Hassan Musavi, an assistant professor of gender and women's studies and sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. We will be talking about his book, *Disruptive Situations: Fractal Orientalism and Queer Strategies in Beirut*, published by Temple University Press in 2020. We are having this discussion in the wake of an explosion in Beirut that led to many losses and injuries. We extend our solidarity to Beirutis and their loved ones. And thank you very much, Dr. Musavi, for joining us on a day like today. So, usually we start off by asking our authors how they came to their projects. But having read how embedded you've been in everyday life in Beirut and its dip- disruptions, I will instead ask, how did this project come to you?
1: Thank you so much, Elise. Thank you for uh, taking the time to read and engage with the book. And uh, for this interview, I'm excited about the opportunity. Um, I also just want to acknowledge and echo what you said um, about the... Um, massive and devastating explosion that uh, happened yesterday which led to the death of over 100 people and uh, more than 3000 injuries so uh my heart and mind is in beirut so i'll start uh, try my best to uh f- focus on the book and 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 uh think with you about these uh uh violence and everyday disruptions in beirut um so um, th- thank you so much for uh, for your question. Uh, I actually thought it was excellent that you switched it around because, uh, as you know, you're an anthropologist, so you know that with ethnographic fieldwork, uh, we always start with questions that end up changing when we're in the field. So I'm going to start with the, how the idea for the project emerged and then tell you how it came to me later on in a way to haunt me because I missed a few things. So the idea really came to me uh, in 2009 um, when I had moved to the U.S. for my uh, PhD studies and I came across an article in the New York Times uh, in August 20, 2009 uh, that was titled uh, Beirut, Pro, the Provincetown of the Middle East. And I had never heard of Provincetown. And uh, so for those who don't know, Provincetown is a kind of a gay... Uh, tourist destination in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And what this piece did is it positioned Beirut as an exceptional and new gay-friendly destination in the Arab world. And for what it called, like it called uh, its nascent and flourishing gay life. So it was a bit surprising to me having just moved from Beirut. And I started conducting some research and found that Since 2005, uh, which is the year that the Syrian troops withdrew from Lebanon uh, after the Syrian occupation, there was this new uh, Euro-American journalistic interest in gay life in Beirut. So there was this assumption that gay life is going to flourish. And um, I found all these articles, and again, it's 2005 onwards, Uh, where this started happening, where they were likening Beirut to uh, Provincetown, to uh, Christopher Street of the Middle East, which is in New York City, uh, to the Vegas of the Middle East, to the Sin City of the Middle East. And I was kind of uh, surprised because traditionally Beirut has always been um, referred to as the Paris of the Middle East uh, or other European cities, but there was a new move where it really became about uh, um, U.S.-based cities uh, that are being compared to, or Beirut is being compared to. So, you know, at the beginning, my my question for the project was, what does it mean to say that uh, Beirut is a gay-friendly city? More specifically, gay-friendly for whom? So I was interested in these two questions. And then... One underlying thing that I kept finding in my research in these journalistic articles and also the Gay Guides, which I can talk to about later, is that they linked the idea of gay friendliness to this conception of the modern. So I was really interested in how do these narratives of progress and modernity circulate first in these Euro-American texts, and then how are they circulate in Beirut and how are they articulated by LGBT people in Beirut? So that was my primary interest for the project. Um, I Another thing is that I was interested in moving away from minoritizing LGBT populations in the Middle East. So I knew from the beginning that I did not want to write a book uh, about um Gay life in Beirut or gay people in Beirut, which to some was disappointing. You know, uh, uh, I uh, <clears throat> there are books about that. That was just not my angular interest. However, so um, as I was, uh, so, so that was the main project actually of my uh, dissertation. Uh, I did. I conducted fieldwork from 2005 onwards, but uh, mostly my, my ethnographic fieldwork that I draw on in the book was in 2013 and 2014, which was at the height of the ISIS uh, suicide bombings in Beirut. Uh, I can't recount how many bombings uh, I uh, lived when I was in the fieldwork, uh, which is kind of the nature of trauma, right? Um, but uh, my research kept getting interrupted, right? So uh, you're interviewing people, you're following people, talking to them about uh, modernity, but then uh, you have everyday life disruptions and violence, whether it's suicide bombings or the precarity of everyday life, um, the shortages of basic services, such like, you know, daily electricity blackouts, lack of drinking water. There was also a citywide garbage crisis. So the way that my research, uh, the way that th- the research found me, uh, is that I, uh, when I took a step back and went back to my field notes after finishing my dissertation, I found that my field notes were really much more concerned with the violence of the everyday that I experienced and that my interlocutors experienced. Um, so, uh, It was something that became embodied in me, and it's something uh, that I have long taken for granted. So I was born and raised in Beirut. I was uh, born in the Civil War, but I lived the post-war period, and uh, the post-war period really is marked by everyday life disruptions. Uh, They don't have a beginning. They don't have an end. uh, So the norm is that of disruption. They just keep on changing forms. So when I looked at my notes, I realized that the project really, what I want to write about is what does it mean to live amidst everyday life disruptions? Um, uh, and uh, to somebody who, uh, again, had taken that for granted, uh, I, I, I wanted to step back and unpack it. Um so I work in the areas of transnational queer and sexuality studies and queer theory. And, uh, I was thinking, what can queer theory offer me, uh, to understand, uh, the case of Beirut without just simply deconstructing identity. And I found that, you know, a lot of the times the field of queer studies, uh, uh, Obviously destabilizes identities, questions, modes of knowing about the social world, but it still relies on categories of normativity that need to be deconstructed. So that is, queer theory presumes that there's a norm that needs to be shaken or upset. So my question is, my guiding question is, what becomes of queer theory? What can queer lens offer us when actually everyday disruptions and precarity are the norm? They are the conditions of social and cultural life. They're not an aberration. Um, so that's that's how, how, the, how the book kind of found me. And what I try to do in the book is to offer an alternative narrative to these uh, neoliberal uh, understandings of Beiruti exceptionalism that uh, I spoke about in the beginning in these uh, Euro-American uh, tour guides. Uh, because in these tour guides, uh, these... Uh, the tour guides, sorry, and um, uh, what do you call them? Um, the travelogues, they really gloss over or completely erase the texture of everyday life, the exclusions, the inequalities, the everyday life disruptions and violence. So to do that, uh, I theorized the concept of al-Wada. It's an Arabic term that is used in post-war Beirut uh, which in English just means the situation. It's a nebulous term used by people in Lebanon, uh, including me, my interlocutors, to refer to various disruptive situations that keep on happening. Uh, they're caused by geopolitics, displacement, conflict, political instability, and war. So alwada really is just the, it refers to the condition or the state of affairs as they are. And uh, as I said, it's an unclear term. So one sometimes might want to uh, make connections to the to the situation, to think about Israel-Palestine, the term conflict, or Northern Ireland, the troubles. But with al or the situation, it's not clear whether it's positive or negative. It's very nebulous, which really captures uh, the, the everyday precarity, the affect of everyday precarity. So... So in a sense, I wanted to respond to these depictions uh, of Beirut by relying on my uh, on my ethnographic fieldwork. But I also really wanted to put the reader, or my hope is to put the reader within this situation, or Al-Wada. I wanted the reader to feel the sense of uncertainty, disruption, which uh, in order to, to understand what everyday life feels like and also uh, by doing that, I try to think about how disruptive situations can help us unpack and think about the paradoxes of modernity. Um, so I know this is, was a long kind of winded answer. I hope I answered. No, this, this
0: was amazing, actually. And I think you've done a really remarkable job in, you know, doing Exactly that, especially through the way that you've written about everyday life in Beirut throughout the book. Um, building on building on your comments on the travel guides, um, which are written mostly written with mostly Western and gay audiences in mind, I wanted to ask you how these materials inform your concept of fractal orientalism, which is, you know, another concept that's so central to your book alongside Alwada.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for this question, uh, Alize. So uh, this concept of fractal orientalism, so uh, when I started studying these travelogues and uh, gay tour guides, um, which are prime examples of stories of transnational mobility, right? Because tour guides uh, and travelogues uh, are used to document, uh, I'm putting it in quotes, uh, life in other places. And it's premised that the person writing these uh, is a person who is transnationally mobile. Even though, for example, one of the, 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 the guides that I relied on the most, it's a gay guide called Spartacus International, it claims to be for all gay men. But, in fact, it isn't because it's for those who are, again, able to be transnationally mobile, socially upwardly mobile, and have uh, the capital to travel and the passport. Um, so, w- w- what I found in these travelogues and the, 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 the tour guides is that it was not simply an orientalist uh and the and the way that edward said described orientalism it's not simply just uh east west depiction uh, right uh, it's uh, the, the, what what these tour guides were doing um uh, so as edward said reminds us or, or or tells us that orientalism really is about when you write about other places you're essentially also writing a story about yourself um so they're very relational but w- w- what I, what i found is that it wasn't simple uh, a binary between the west and the east again quote or the middle east and and uh europe or the us but beirut there were the same distinctions so fractals uh, i borrow the term fractals uh from math and and physics um And they're really nested dichotomies. So they're binaries that keep repeating themselves on multiple levels and multiple scales. So they're not just one simple binary. And uh, these tour guides, the way that they positioned Beirut, sorry, or the travelogues and tour guides positioned it as uh, exceptional, they could only do it through using what I'm calling fractal orientalism. That is Beirut becomes exceptional uh, only because it's in the middle East. Right. Uh, Right. Uh, So again, the distinction starts with um, saying, you know, uh, there's a distinction between the Euro American city, Euro American cities and Euro American countries and uh, the middle East. And then, The same distinction for, let's say, progressive versus traditional uh, is found at another level, which is that of Lebanon versus other countries in the Arab world. Then when you zoom in, you find that it's the same kind of uh, orientalist uh, uh, depiction uh, applied to distinguish Beirut from other cities in Lebanon. Then it's rural versus urban then it's christian versus muslim. So in the book I provide um a kind of um a diagram to show what fractal orientalism is. But again, the easiest way to think about it is uh to see that Beirut can only become gay friendly, can only be exceptional if we locate it in the Middle East, in the Arab world. Uh otherwise uh it, it's it's not possible. Uh so um another thing that i have i mean one of the orientalist tropes that i kept seeing uh and again i'm just this is just as an example is that uh the tour guides it, it, or when they explain what gay life looks like in or uh what life looks like in paris or london uh, they talked about culture museums food uh but when it came to the global south particularly cities in uh the middle east like amman uh, beirut cairo uh, it was just about people so men there might not accept your money men look a certain way so really it was marking and marketing people for consumption but that distinction of um, culture like culture progress versus not was repeated on these multiple scales so i found it repeated when uh they were writing about beirut versus other cities oh it, Beirut has more culture than, uh, uh Jeddah and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but then within Beirut, a Christian area has more culture than a Muslim area, etc. So they kept repeating themselves on these multiple scales, and that's how I got to my uh, concept of fractal Orientalism. Um,
0: yeah, thank you very much for this, for this, you know, very informative explanation of your concept and i personally find it very fascinating um especially you know when we think with fractals we can transcend the binary of the west and the rest which is in itself you know an important sort of discourse but it instead forces a reckoning with multiple forms of orientalism both within the middle east and beyond um And building on that, I was wondering how fractal Orientalism in general and the context of Beirut in particular expand our understanding of queerness. And how do you articulate the queer in the queer strategies that um, are very central to your book?
1: So I think there are three questions there. So I'm going to just, Briefly answer the first one, which is just to say something more about the multiple scales of fractal orientalism. Uh, so it uh, just so it's clear that these narratives don't only circulate. Again, speaking about mobility, uh, right? We associate mobility sometimes only with people, but these discourses are also mobile and they travel. So w- another way that I uh, found this uh, these fractal orientalists discourses is that they themselves travel in Beirut and are taken up by people. So uh, some people reproduced these fractal orientalist notions saying, yes, Lebanon is exceptional. Uh, others were skeptical of such discourses. Others entirely rejected it as you will see in the book. So uh, the concept is not just simply um, left to uh, the way that it's articulated uh in these travelogues, but I was really interested in seeing how they travel and how they take a life of their own in Beirut. So, in one way, uh, fractal Orientalism is is kind of the 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 problem or the problem that I wanted to tackle. And to tackle the problem, I uh, zoomed in. Uh, so, my first two chapters are about fractal Orientalism, uh, and then. I zoom in into thinking about, okay, if this is the depiction and people are circulating these narratives, uh, what is it on the ground? What is, uh, as, as your question, uh, as you ask about the context of Beirut in particular, how does it expand our understanding of queerness? So um, what I did, so uh, for me, Al-Wada was the answer to fractal orientalism because fractal orientalism, is made possible by glossing over alwada, and to think of alwada and everyday life disruptions, uh, one has to think about how do people deal with that, which is where my queer strategies come in. So uh, yes, my interviews and my interlocutors were mainly uh, gender non normative, uh, uh, some gay men, uh, some lesbians, and uh, gender queer individuals. Uh, and this is all their self-identification, even though they were my interlocutors uh, and I see it through the lens of their everyday life, uh, really the queer strategies that I will talk about in a bit can be enacted by anybody. You don't have to be queer, quote-unquote, to enact them. So uh, the context of Beirut makes us think of the multiple uses of queer beyond people. Uh, Al-Wada is a queer situation, uh, it's a situation where uh, the norm is that of disruption, right? So I wanted to move away from using queer to describe people uh, or to use it as an umbrella term to talk about LGBT people, to think about what are queer situations. So the disruptive situation is a queer one because, again, it is normative. Uh, th- that's that's one way that... Uh, that kind of I expanded the concept of queerness. And also instead of uh, thinking about queer people and how they live their life, I was more interested in the p- queer practices of how do you, uh, again, live amidst these everyday disruptions. And what, what makes these practices queer uh, is um, because they might seem unusual Uncommon uh, to Euro-American audiences that assume, again, that assume uh, a certain um, uh, a n- a normative baseline of stability. So, um, so Alwada really is not just the backdrop of the research, but it's also an analytical tool to understand what these queer strategies do. Um, and uh, what, what I try by focusing on queer strategies of survival or of negotiating uh, uh, everyday life, uh, I, I really try, I'm trying, I try to expand our understanding of queerness, uh, to move away from identity and think about practices of embodying, feeling, negotiating everyday life. So uh, language in many ways, fails in articulating or accounting for alwada uh, Empirically, I cannot, I, I can right tell you, uh, it looks like this, but since al-wada keeps changing, uh, language might fail, but affect does not fail. Uh, so by capturing also the affect of my interlocutors uh, as they're negotiating everyday life, uh, that's one way of thinking about uh, queerness that, again, is not just about people um and and i have to say my my, my title of uh, disruptive situations might betray the concept of alwada because when you say disruptive situations uh, readers might assume that there are times when the situation is not disrupted but my whole point is that the the, the situation is always disruptive so alwada really is a way of describing queer times and queer affects and I can talk more about the queer strategies uh, if you like me to, because I really did focus on, uh, other than affect, I focused on mobility and everyday access to space. So how do people move within and across the city? How do they cross neighborhood borders? And how do they have access to, let's say, gay-friendly spaces and communities of organizing? But uh, if you'd like me
0: to. yeah actually you asked the question that i was going to ask you um (laughs) yeah i mean i really want to know um what role mobility and access to space plays in queer strategies and navigating um the disruptive situations that doesn't have you know non-disruptive sides in everyday life in beirut
1: yeah. So um, yeah. So it's great that it flows well from from the previous question. So thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I, I chose to focus on access to space uh, and mobility, particularly because, as I told you in the beginning, the book, um, the research was done, uh, was conducted in at the height of the ISIS suicide bombings, uh, which means that uh, there were a lot of checkpoints that were. Um, put in place uh, people were being searched when you enter neighborhoods uh, malls uh, parts of the city so the ISIS suicide bombings were really happening in uh, residential neighborhoods and at checkpoints so uh i was interested so how do people move in the city uh, given uh, this heightened fear of uh, of uh, of, su- of suicide attacks um so, um, so so there are multiple levels of, of, of this discussion. The, 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 I'm going to talk about three uh, and uh, uh, just three examples. So for many of my interlocutors, first, uh, uh, many of them uh, were um, – had moped scooters to navigate the city. So they did not rely on cars, and that's particularly because uh, they didn't want to be harassed if they used public transportation, uh, especially for uh, genderqueer individuals and trans individuals. So they had their own scooters, and it was cheaper to have a scooter than a car, right? And Beirut is a very congested uh, city. So I was wondering how do people even... uh, 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 access space using the scooter. Uh, another another thing is that uh, uh, at the checkpoints, uh, a lot of the times uh, people were stopped and searched uh, based on the assumptions of who might be a suspect, right? And again, I'm talking at a time, uh, and I forgot to mention that this was also at the same time that the war in Syria was happening, and we had the influx of refugees from Syria and Lebanon. So uh, when you get stopped, uh, again, there was the racialization of uh, Syrians as, as, as outsiders, as potential risks, a potential uh, uh, risk uh, for the country. So their mobility, so the mobility of refugees, for example, was uh, completely um, um, uh, uh, kind of restricted by the state and by many municipalities where they could not, let's say, leave the house after 7 p.m. because they were considered dangerous. So for some of my interlocutors, uh, one of my interlocutors is a bigender individual who at the time identified as bigender um Uh, he was worried because he would be stopped on his scooter because he uh, looked like, uh, or he was assumed, he was racialized, looked like a working-class guy, and then he would be stopped, and uh, he had just gotten top surgery, so he didn't want to really be uh, searched uh, because it was uncomfortable uh, for him to do so. So he would have to navigate these checkpoints um and was less mobile to be mobile he had to uh, um rely on queer strategies that i describe in more detail in the book i'm not going to reveal everything uh, uh in the interview so that maybe some people will read the book you know uh, and, 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 and another way that i talk about mobility is that so many people you know the travelogs talked about uh gay life in the city, but so many people do not have access, so many local queer people do not have uh, access to uh, to central Beirut because they live in the outskirts. Public transportation is not reliable. Uh, they're working class. So uh, some people, uh, uh, one of my interlocutors uh, used to wear a hijab uh, and uh, she was not uh, welcome at, at the gay places because the assumption that uh, you uh, wearing a hijab meant that you're not queer, and again, I'm using queer here loosely. Uh, so, um, really, also, if you look at the history of Lebanon, checkpoints tell us so much about uh, geopolitics. Uh, so, who is at the checkpoint? So, if you look at the at the micro level. Uh, you can know so much more uh, about the geopolitics. So if it's a Syrian uh, checkpoint, an Israeli one, uh, or a Lebanese checkpoint, you know it just tells you more about the about the geopolitics in the region. I hope this answered your question. I I don't know if if I did.
0: Of course this was great um and I'm glad that you left you know some examples um for the readers to read for themselves um which you also explain brilliantly in the book um and you know speaking about mobility and access I want to ask you a question about you know limitations on mobility and access which you kind of got at Um, For example, in the book, among the queer strategies you name is alternative communities or the bubble, as you and your interlocutors name it. And I'm wondering how do these bubbles, so to speak, constitute ways to inhabit uncertain presence, especially when we think about you know, class, sexuality, gender, social status, which you mentioned so far.
1: So thank you for that. Um, you know, um, so the bubble, uh, which is a chapter on its own, um, I, 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 so I don't consider it as an alternative community. I can cons- consider it as an alternative to community. So whenever we think about. Uh, uh, LGBT populations, we uh, assume, again, given Euro-American kind of assumptions of, of where is the community. So the bubble really uh, is a formation that I found as I spoke to uh, a lot of my interlocutors, uh, that responds to the failure of community as we know it. There is no centralized community uh, in the way that we think about it, or gayborhood, or whatever you want to call it. But instead of thinking about bubbles, really, people, uh, sorry, about communities, people spoke of bubbles. And the bubble is a temporary sheltered place. And place here, again, very loosely, I'll explain it in a bit, uh, what I mean by it. It's it's a place that people and uh, sometimes with their friends or kin retreat to in order to resume their lives in Beirut amidst al-wada. So uh, these bubbles are do not necessarily have to be uh, physical spaces. They can be. Uh, but again, what they do is that they provide respite. They provide a space to retreat from al-wada. So community usually is conceptualized as a long-term space and relations that engender a sense of belonging. But bubbles are liminal. They're precarious. You know, the bubble uh, can can, um, pop at any point. Um, And obviously my interlocutors experienced bubbles very differently. For some, it was a physical space, such as a neighborhood. Uh, For some, it was an organizing space, Uh, For others, it just really meant a mental space where they can uh, take a break. And what's important about bubbles is that it takes us away from this concept of resiliency that uh, people mentioned being exhausted and tired from al-wada. They did not want to reproduce narratives of resiliency because when we talk about resiliency, we forget the structural issues. We put it all on the individual, forgetting the structural inequality Uh, embedded uh, in in the systems we live in. so The bubble usually is a concept employed in urban studies of inequalities or gated communities, even in social movement literature. But the way that I used it through my experience and my ethnography is that uh, we need to step back and think of the bubble as a temporal space. Again, it's time-bound. It's not necessarily spatial. Uh, What it does is that it interrupts or suspends people. Uh, it provides temporary, temporary, sorry, relief. Uh, temporary, because as I told you, they can burst at any moment. Um, it will eventually rupture, sure. and people were aware of that. But uh, it, and and what the bubble does, it it also speaks back to the concept of safe safe space, because safe space for who is is, is another question, which really answers. Uh, the uh, the second point of your question of how does it change or, or how does it affect people based on gender, class, um, uh, and, 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 and other social locations. Um, and the, the second point about the bubbles is that they're not idealistic spaces of retreat. So they're very effective. So they're temporal on the one hand, but they're effective. They can be positive. You can feel good, uh, the, you can feel ambivalent, uh, or you can also. Some people inhabit Alwada, and that's where privilege comes in, which I'll talk to and talk about in a bit to deny that Alwada exists. Uh, so for for some people, uh, so for example, if you have uh, if you're a dual national and you have a US passport or a Canadian passport you could decide to leave Beirut at any point. Uh, you can be evacuated, such as the case in 2006 uh, when uh, the Israeli war on Lebanon, a lot of UN nationals were evacuated. So the bubble really, um, it's its a condition that, uh, it's, it's a temporary condition, but for some it's more temporary than others. Uh, to, to have a bubble... Uh, you need some form of privilege is what many of my um, interlocutors argued. So we can think of the bubble also as a counterpublic if we want to think along the lines of Michael Warner. Uh, But counterpublics reproduce the exclusions that publics reproduce, right? So it's not, the bubble is not uh, a safe idealistic space. Uh, So uh, again, uh, some people Cannot uh, because the bubble kind of gives you respite, or for some can make you live in a world where you can deny that the situation exists. Not everybody has that that ability to inhabit to inhabit a bubble. Um, so uh, I remember uh, uh, speaking to one of my interlocutors. Uh, who was a queer activist, uh, her pseudonym is Suraya, and she d- describes her experience of the bubble as, as a trench, you know? Uh, she acknowledges, but at the same time she says she acknowledges that it takes privilege for her to even have a trench to hide in. Uh, obviously it's not, a, it's a metaphor. It's not an actual trench, uh, but for Suraya, for example, uh, who again was a queer activist, uh, um, she claimed that to be radical means to have to face the conditions of everyday life without denying them or hiding. So uh, so in many ways, the, the, the bubble uh, is needed, but at the same time, if, you, uh, if the bubble makes you deny the existence of disruption and violence, then uh, you're not radical. What you end up doing is reproducing these fractal orientalist narratives. So for those people who experience Beirut as exceptional, gay-friendly, they they live in a physical bubble that is different. But they have to have uh, privilege such as gender normativity, being cis, being from an upper-class background, and... um, then for them, the bubble takes on a different form. So again, the bubble requires at least moderate privilege, uh, access to networks, uh, class, being gender normative. uh, And at the same time, um, it can have the potential of reproducing these narratives of exceptionalism if you end up really denying the situation that it exists.
0: Thank you for sharing these, you know, wonderfully complex insights. Um, And I want to circle back to how you came to derive these insights. Um, For example, at the end of the book, you highlight the need for queer flexible methodologies. Could you tell us more about this methodological orientation and how it figured into your work?
1: Sure, uh, I can try, (laughs) you know. So, uh, I mean, flexible methodology is a term that I am building on from Asil Sawalha's book um, on reconstructing Beirut. Um, So when you're doing fieldwork in a war zone, for the lack of a better term it is a war zone and you know in in our methods courses i don't know about you but in my methods courses ethnography courses nobody taught me how to conduct an ethnography in a war zone oh, yeah. uh, you know or what to do when a bomb explodes so uh, I needed to rely on uh, on myself, you know? So what I meant by queer flexible, or what I mean by queer flexible methodologies is we have to let go of this rigid understanding of um, uh, both used, especially in ethnographic fieldwork, that we go to the field, conduct our research, you know, uh, come back, write up the notes, maybe visit a couple more times, and then um, kind of build our theory from there, from the ground up. But, uh, in, in what queer flexible methodologies do is that I I'm thinking that I needed to be very flexible in terms of, uh, I had to exit the field multiple times, uh, when I felt unsafe. So if I was re-traumatized by bombings, uh, I didn't feel safe. I I had the option and I had the privilege because I had a visa to come back to the U S, uh, Sometimes when I was there renewing a visa, I couldn't leave, right? But uh, it requ- what queer flexible methodologies do or what I'm proposing that they do is that first we acknowledge uh, uh, it requires us to be humble in the way that we approach the field. Uh, and also it, it, it makes us accept uh, what can be seen as failure or what some people can see as failure. So, for example, in sociology, uh, which is the discipline i was trained in, uh, you have to have a generalizable sample. I didn't have one, nor was that my intention. But I had to let go of, of, these, uh, of, of these hegemonic white understandings of rigor uh, in order to uh, really take what can be seen as a failure for some. Which is me exiting and entering the field multiple times. An interview gets stopped because of a bomb. You might not continue it. Uh, I had to let go of these of these hege- hegemonic and you know I call them also empirical, not empirical, but they're 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 very based on empire to collect data uh, in order to uh, be accountable to my field. So uh, to be accountable to, to to a field or a war zone is to write your book in such a way that also shows the disruption Uh, and to accept the disruption as part and parcel of our everyday life. I mean, think of COVID now. Uh, Think of how people cannot access their field sites um, or even think about not having funding. These are things that I had to deal with uh, that, again, the way it informed my work is that it made me more uh, accountable to the experiences that I had and those of my interlocutors. So we just need to be more humble and uh, turn what is seen as failure into strength, uh, if if that makes sense. That's what's queer about it is uh, really, okay, you know, I didn't do my, the whole year because of bombings. I'm going to write about it instead of uh, just apologizing for having less quote-unquote data.
0: That's really amazing, Hasan, for, you know, especially for our our listeners who may be, you know, preparing to navigate their own field sites, especially in this, you know, new landscape of pandemics and different kinds of uncertainties that you described. And on that note, I would like to ask my last question, which is how did you position yourself as you conducted this research and you got to this a little bit but i was wondering if you could you know tell our listeners um some you know if you could elaborate on some specific ways in which you navigated some of the situations that permeate your work
1: oh sorry i uh so um Yes, again, that's uh, that's also a really good question, and I have an article coming out next year about it, uh, called "Bad Feelings." Uh, uh, I forgot the subtitle of the article, but it's coming out uh, in, in the uh, journal uh, Departures and Critical Qualitative Research. Uh, so, the way that I really navigated, first of all, uh, I took a lot of field notes. I uh, thought in the beginning uh, that I needed to suppress uh, my own uh, embodied experiences of being in Beirut uh, so I can produce you know, good research. And then uh, as I started really embracing the bad feelings that came up from the field uh, is how I was able to navigate the situation. I embraced it. I accepted it. Uh, uh, it it wasn't an easy thing to do, but if I hadn't embraced uh, the fear, the anxiety, the the trauma, uh, I wouldn't have gotten to my theoretical framework of al-Wada. So I navigated it. Um, I found myself, as you will see in the book at many times, s- seeing that I was uh, conducting... Are doing a lot of the queer strategies that my interlocutors were doing. So I, uh, I found myself having to do the same thing uh, without consciously thinking about it. Um, so I'm not sure about your question about positionality. Uh, do you mean how I entered the field, how I described myself to my interlocutors, uh, just so I understand? So I don't miss your question.
0: Yeah. um, Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the book that appears in the appendix, but that was a part that was really, you know, that was really appealing to me. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure. So, I mean, I positioned myself. So uh, uh, the the majority of people that I spoke with and uh, who informed the book, and I hope that I gave their experiences justice by thinking of them as uh, knowledge producers so i don't know in my index you see them uh I, I, I don't know i'm i think people maybe don't look at indexes but 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 in my index um, i do <laughs> <laughs> okay great see so in my index my interlocutors actually uh are all there as authors in their pseudonyms so i didn't uh, what i tried to do by by using a feminist methodology of thinking that uh our interlocutors are not people we're just using for research so they really were knowledge producers or they are knowledge producers so that's why in the index uh, all their names their pseudonyms are there instead of simply theorists uh, i did uh, interview mostly gender queer um, trans and uh, and uh, queer women uh, and uh, the the case was is uh, there's a lot of studies on uh, Gay men, gay cis men, uh, and the experiences of men, uh, that was not my interest. And what oriented me to the people that I spoke with was really their um, queer organizing strategies. So I uh, was introduced to my main interlocutor, uh, Rabab, who was bi-gender at the time, um, through, uh, somebody that I knew through feminist organizing, but, uh, as a cis man, uh, I was told that I'm going to be observed for some time. Who am I? You know, so many people st- st- are studying, uh, gay life in the middle East, especially a lot of, uh, Euro American white scholars. So, uh, these people were skept- skeptical, uh, they didn't want another person to come from the U S and, you know, write about gay life. Uh, so I, um, was very honest with my research. This is what I'm interested in doing. Uh, I, uh, I am a queer man from Lebanon. Uh, I am cis and I come from a working class background. Uh, What this did, my class background more than any other marker was really what got me to the interviewers uh, and my interlocutors, because there were a lot of commonality uh, in our class backgrounds. Um, and where we grew up. So that was one way that I connected to my interlocutors. At the same time, uh, when I met uh, a person who was involved in queer organizing, uh, and again, I mean queer different than LGBT organizing. I didn't interview really people who were uh, doing work in in LGBT organizing per se. uh, And I've written an article about this. I'm not going to go into detail. Um, So... um, I lost my point. No, I'll, I'll get back to my point. Uh, so, I um, I introduced myself. I spent time with them before uh, I was allowed to uh, really uh, get into the to, to to start interviewing and meeting people. And one thing that I was told, Alize, uh, that's uh, that stays with me is that my interlocutors told me when and when not. Uh, my uh, presence is should be as a researcher or as uh, just somebody hanging out. So um, what this did was also make me feel more accountable, or I hope I was, to the field. So sometimes if I'm hanging out, you know, geared deep hanging out, <laughs> uh, I was told, you know, this is not for your research. This is personal. Uh, so I had to. It was, it was a more of a dialogue than it was a one-way that, yes, I'm just going to record and write about everything. And I had to respect that, and I respected that a lot because uh, it shaped the way that I also account for the lives uh, that I write about. Um, so uh, it was really a matter of negotiation. So first, I was, uh, uh, again, for all the right reasons, uh, people were skeptical, Uh, Who am I? Why am I doing this? Uh, What do I want out of this? You know, uh, am I just another researcher who's going to use the lives of queer people to advance? And uh, and then with time, uh, really, there was trust that was built that I'm super thankful for. Uh, And uh, again, they my interlocutors really did mention when and when not my presence was as a researcher and when I was just there as a friend or I don't, the friend, I mean, I don't want to use the term friend because it raises the power dynamics and that's something that I'm still thinking about. Uh, So I I hope that answers the question.
0: Definitely. Um, Yeah. Thank you very much. And, you know, by pointing out these issues, you also show that, you know the assumptions of native insider, uh, are you know not as simple as they appear. Um, and yeah, thank you very much, Doctor Musavi. Yeah,
1: can I actually? Sorry to interject. Can I say of something course. about your point? You bring up a really great point. Yes. Um, no, I'm. I'm. Uh, for those of us uh working uh in the places where we uh where people assume is home, right? Or where we grew up, it's assumed that we cannot produce theory, that we're native informants. And that's something that I really uh, tried to uh, push against in the book. Uh, I'm not a native informant, you know, uh, uh, which is, uh, well, and, and some people will still ask you these questions, right? Whether they read the book or not. Um, mm-hmm. So you're you're absolutely right to point that out, Uh uh, we need to take knowledge from the global south uh, uh, s- uh, seriously in the sense that uh, this knowledge should create theory and not just the other way around.
0: On that note, thank you very much, Dr. Musavi, for joining us and your insights.
1: Thank you so much, Elize. Thank you. Uh, thank you for all your engagement. And I truly appreciated this opportunity.
0: It was my pleasure. Uh, So I am Aliza Arjan. This discussion of Disruptive Situations, Fractal Orientalism and Queer Strategies in Beirut, published by Temple University Press in 2020, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.